Welcome to the Freewheeling Diplomat Podcast. My name is Colin Cleary and I am the Freewheeling Diplomat. This podcast was spurred by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It provides the perspective of a veteran U.S. diplomat, now outside the Foreign Service, who served extensively in both Russia and Ukraine. The focus is on the larger issues raised by the conflict. As the podcast builds, we'll reach out to some guests. And now to today's topic. Can U.S. diplomacy shift China's policy on the war in Ukraine? China has been cagey in its support for Russia since the February invasion of Ukraine. On one hand, China echoes Russia's propaganda line and has ramped up massively purchases of Russian oil, giving the Putin regime a lifeline. On the other hand, China has not sent military supplies to Russia, and Chinese companies have actually decreased exports to Russia in recent months out of fear of sanctions. And China has not recognized the quote-unquote independence of the self-declared Russian puppet statelets in the Donbass region. Putin's deeply misguided and brutal aggression in Ukraine, and the fact that the war is now nearing its fifth month with no end in sight, should give China pause. President Xi declared a partnership without limits with Putin in February. But given Putin's brutality and ineptitude, is this partnership without limits still in China's interests? Or might Xi and the Chinese elite, for their own reasons, be persuaded to back away from a damaged Putin? Perhaps a few key adjustments to U.S. diplomacy might help them do it. So that is our main issue for this episode. Secretary Blinken just met on July 9th on the margins of the G20 ministerial with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Ukraine was, of course, front and center. Blinken made the right points in stressing that it's time for China to stand up to Russia. He lamented that China was echoing Russian propaganda on the war and that Chinese claims of neutrality were hard to swallow. Wang Yi reacted coolly and accused the U.S. of Chinophobia. There was no appreciable progress on China's position toward Ukraine. Wang Yi also met with Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov on the margins of the G20, where he noted the, quote, strong resilience of the China-Russia relationship. Following Moscow's script, Wang Yi would not call Russia's actions an invasion and maintained that China would continue to uphold a, quote, objective and fair stance regarding the crisis. Okay, before we delve further into this, let's review the current state of play on the ground in Ukraine, now five months into the war. And we'll get back to the China question in a minute. On July 7th, Putin doubled, maybe tripled down, on his worst impulses and expressed his determination to continue his annihilation campaign against Ukraine. Putin commented in a meeting with leaders from the Duma, Russia's pseudo-parliament, that Moscow had not even begun to fight, quote, in earnest. In other words, Russia is just getting started. Putin seems to think that time is on his side and that the West will eventually weaken in their support for Ukraine. Putin even taunted the West, saying, quote, Today we hear they want to defeat us on the battlefield. Let them try. So, says Putin, Russia has hardly begun. Despite about 30,000-plus Russian soldiers dead and perhaps 90,000 wounded and the loss of thousands of Russian tanks, APCs, helicopters, and planes, I would expect that Putin's declaration that the war was not even begun in earnest to be of small comfort to Russian troops, thousands, likely tens of thousands of whom, will now die in the service of Putin's imperial fantasies. So the state of play seems to be this. Putin plans to grind on, especially in Donbass, leveling village by village, town by town, city by city, killing tens of thousands more Russian-speaking Ukrainian civilians, 
precisely those whom he claims to be liberating. The New York Times has called this, quote, a battle of inches with no end in sight in an analysis on July 9th. Putin's overall strategic aims have not changed, despite the fact that Ukrainians rejected his bloody liberation and did not surrender or welcome Russian forces with flowers as he expected. So now they, the Ukrainians, must be pummeled and conquered and eventually re-educated. The Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, has recently testified that, in the opinion of the U.S. intelligence community, Putin's goal remains to take most of Ukraine. There is thus no expectation that he will stop in Donbass. Indeed, Putin's agents are handing out passports in Donbass and other occupied areas to Ukrainians. In the southern areas of Kherson and elsewhere, there is also the real prospect of fake referenda and illegal annexation, as happened in Crimea in 2014. Secretary Blinken commented at the G20 meeting that there was no point in meeting Russian representatives now, since there was no indication that Russia is ready for any diplomacy. Putin still seeks capitulation. So the main action will remain on the battlefield, and there, there is some hope. The provision by the U.S. of long-range 21st century artillery, so-called HIMARS, has helped, and may even prove to be a game-changer if Ukraine gets enough of them. The HIMARS are, unlike Russian artillery, highly accurate. They are crucial to countering the relentless artillery barrages that have become the main tactic of Russian forces, and they've begun to make a real difference. Unfortunately, on the economic side, sanctions are not biting enough in the near term. Putin's war has raised the price of oil, and Putin has a market outside Europe in which to sell that oil. China and India are taking advantage of discounts on Russian oil, so the Putin regime is, perversely, making more money this year than last from oil exports, despite the reduced oil volumes to Europe. Now on to the diplomatic dimension. Diplomacy among the Western partners continues to be a success. The West remains united. U.S. leadership has been crucial. So that much has worked. But support outside the West and its allies is much weaker. That is why China matters, and why the U.S. should look for ways to enhance its diplomacy with China to see if it can cause a shift. China is, as we've noted, Putin's only significant international partner. Apart from China, Putin has only Lukashenko and perhaps some of the other leaders from Central Asia in his corner. And maybe the rogues gallery, the usual ones, Iran, Venezuela, Syria, Nicaragua. But even the Central Asian countries like Kazakhstan have been wary in supporting Putin's war. China is critical because of its great power status and the revenue it is providing to the Putin regime. So let's go back to February 4th and see how the two sides characterize their relationship on the eve of Russia's invasion. Putin was in Beijing for the Olympics. He'd been beating the war drum against Ukraine for months, for years. His forces were set to attack in what he thought would be a blitzkrieg success. Putin and Xi were meeting for the 38th time. Yes, 38. They put out a long joint statement. In it, they proclaimed a partnership, quote, without limits. A main thrust is their mutual grievance at what they see as the legacy of a unipolar world run by the United States. The U.S., the hegemon, is without doubt their joint adversary. That is the tie that binds them. Apart from that, the document is a repository of platitudes, doublespeak, and hypocrisy. Indeed, I'll quote from the joint statement at length, if only to show how shameless the two sides can be in invoking noble-sounding principles while doing precisely the opposite in practice. Right up front, the two sides pledge, quote, respect for the rights of peoples to independently determine the development paths of their countries in an international, law-based world order. A bit ironic, don't you think? There is gobbledygook on democracy. 
Basically, they contend that there is no definition of democracy. Democracy is whatever any government says it is. Complete relativism. Quote, It is only up to the people of the country to decide whether their state is a democratic one. End quote. Democracy thus becomes a meaningless term. As when North Korea calls itself People's Democratic Republic of Korea. The joint statement even dares to say that Russia and China, quote, have long-standing traditions of democracy. What are they talking about? And the statement condemns those in the West who, quote, attempt to impose their democratic standards on other countries, end quote. In other words, there should be no standards. Indeed, the joint statement is replete with empty formulations, such as a commitment to, quote, jointly promote the harmonious development of humankind and nature, end quote. There are, of course, numerous, and I mean numerous, references to support for, quote, state sovereignty and territorial integrity, and opposition to interference by external forces in their internal affairs. Solemnly stated, all while Putin's army was poised to invade. The joint statement further proclaims that, quote, all nuclear weapon states should abandon the Cold War mentality and reduce the role of nuclear weapons in their national security policies, end quote. This with Putin and his propagandists poised to threaten nuclear war daily from invasion day onward. And China itself, in direct contradiction to the proclamation of the joint statement, planning to radically increase, indeed triple, its nuclear arsenal over the next decade. So, it is hard to match this joint statement for pure hypocrisy. They further proclaimed their commitment to upholding the principles of the UN, all while Putin was preparing to violate the most basic aspects of the UN Charter with his unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Okay, just one more quote. They condemn, quote, confrontation, where the weak fall prey to the strong. Good grief. The joint statement is indeed a perfect and actually rather scary example of how, in our post-fact world, any assertion, no matter how, how far from the truth, can be piously and repeatedly declared and then immediately contradicted in practice. Okay, so our main question again is, can U.S. diplomacy possibly move China to a better place on the war in Ukraine? To answer this, let's review how China has reacted since the February 24th invasion. China has been pro-Russia, but has tread rather cautiously. In the UN General Assembly, China voted to abstain, as did India in the resolution condemning Russia's invasion. But it has voted with Russia in the UN Human Rights Commission in not supporting an independent review of Russia's human rights abuses in Ukraine. The U.S. has warned of consequences if China were to send arms to Russia or help Russia evade sanctions. China resents the warning, but it has not sent arms. And Chinese exporters have, fearing possible sanctions, actually decreased sales of telecom and other tech products to Russia. Regarding disinformation, China regurgitates Russian propaganda, such as the lie about the U.S. and Ukraine working on bioweapons. Russian forces are portrayed in Chinese media only favorably. Russia's terror bombings of civilians and the killings in places like Bucha are off-limits. Chinese media repeat the Russian propaganda of the war being against Nazis. So, Chinese propaganda absolutely supports Russia. But the most significant support that China has offered Russia has been to ramp up oil imports from Russia. As reported in Bloomberg, last May, China imported $7.5 billion worth of oil from Russia. That was up $1 billion from the month before and up 80% from the same period last year. Indeed, Russia has replaced Saudi Arabia as China's number one source of oil imports. China gets a good deal on price, 
Russia offers significant discounts, around $30 per barrel, so there has been a major shift. China has replaced Germany as Russia's main market for oil exports. Chinese oil purchases are clearly throwing a lifeline to Russia, blunting the impact of the embargo that the EU is placing on Russian oil and funding Putin's war machine. Of course, China's not alone in buying more Russian oil. India is importing six times more oil from Russia than it did a year ago, again at significant discount. But China is number one. Bottom line, China's solemnly expressed principles about sovereignty, territorial integrity, and self-determination of states are situational, and they've gone out the window as far as Russia's, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is concerned. That said, it is worth re-asking our question. Have some things changed since February that might, just might, give China some pause in its partnership without limits with Putin's Russia? As we outlined at the top, the Ukraine war is now five months on with no end in sight. Russia has shown shocking barbarity in its deliberate daily shelling of civilians. Putin has shown himself to be a strategic bungler. He is and will remain a pariah for the West. A desperate Putin regime has also resorted to daily threats of nuclear war. There is also concern about Russian use of chemical or biological weapons. So the question for Xi as he approaches the next Chinese Communist Party conference is this. Is it really such a great idea to be in a relationship without limits with Putin now? Is this in China's interests? Is this in Xi's interests? Let's look at the economic dimension. Russia is a market for less than 2% of China's exports. Repeat, less than 2%, and it may be down to 1% in recent months. The U.S., on the other hand, is the market for 18% of China's exports. That was $577 billion in 2021. The EU plus Britain is about the same, about 17% of Chinese exports. Japan is the market for about 6% of Chinese exports. So, China is an export-driven economy, and its main markets are, by far, the U.S., EU, and allies like Japan. Where is China's bread buttered? Not in Russia. Its economy depends on the U.S. and Western markets. Indeed, the willingness of the U.S. and Europe to open up their markets to China has been absolutely central to China's economic miracle. The U.S. has run trade deficits with China every year since 1985. Is it wise for China to upset this by support for Putin's misadventure in Ukraine, especially now that it has gone so wrong? There is also the nuclear issue. China cannot be happy with the frequency and vehemence of the nuclear threats coming from the Kremlin. Nuclear threats are not good for business. And the use by Russia of nuclear weapons, God forbid, would certainly not be good for China and not be something that China could accept. Indeed, Russia's nuclear arsenal is the only area in which Russia has superiority over China. Thus, Russia's desperate nuclear saber-rattling has got to give the Chinese leadership some pause. So, given the fact that the war is continuing with no end in sight, given that China's main economic ties are with the U.S. and Europe and Asia, not to Russia, given the barbarity of Putin's war, his continuous use of terror bombing against civilian populations, his loss of global standing, and his repeated threat of nuclear war, could diplomatic efforts to get China to distance itself from Putin, if properly handled, succeed? Even a modest shift in tone by China would be significant. Yes, U.S. warnings have helped prevent China from supplying Russia thus far. That has been a success. But we should shoot for more, much more, on the political side. Here's what I'd like to see. China could denounce the indiscriminate bombing of civilians and Russia's constant use of nuclear threats. Very simply, could call, be honest and call Russia's invasion a war. Call it an invasion. China could also call for Russia to return to the February 23rd line. Even better, China could reduce its oil purchases from Russia, such as to their pre-February 2022 levels. 
how might the U.S. make this happen? First, by noting the optics. At this fall's Chinese Party Congress approaches, it might not look good for Xi that he attached himself so completely to Putin. So Xi might be persuaded to distance himself. One way for the U.S. to encourage this is to tone down the democracy versus autocracy line about the war. This democracy versus autocracy line is counterproductive. It lumps Russia and China together at a time when we want to try and split them. So let's be a little more clever about this. We don't need to be taking on everyone at once. It would be much better to stress in our public diplomacy our point that the war is an affront to the rules-based international order. Let's stick with that. This is something that China could and should agree to. After all, China, while resentful of the U.S., has prospered enormously under the international rules-based order. Putin's war is an assault on that order. We should hammer that point relentlessly and avoid the autocracy versus democracy formulation, which puts China on the other side needlessly. U.S. diplomacy can then look for other inducements to try and get China to distance itself from Russia. A lifting of Trump-era tariffs would help. Many economists see these as inflationary and ineffective. Foreign Minister Wang Yi called for tariff relief after his meeting with Blinken on July 7th. Let's look at giving it to them in exchange for their change in tone regarding Russia. So what else could U.S. diplomacy do? This is a bit more controversial, but we could tone it down on Taiwan. Again, there is no need to take on both Russia and China at once. We should not fall into the trap of equating Taiwan with Ukraine. They are different cases. If China were willing to be helpful on Russia, the U.S. could reiterate its one-China policy and state that it does not support a declaration of independence by Taiwan. We could reduce freedom of navigation challenges to the Chinese in the Taiwan Strait and elsewhere. This would carry weight. Nixon went to China to take advantage of a rift that had already occurred between China and the USSR. There is no rift yet today between China and Russia. But Putin's ineptitude and pariah status could have created an opening. Let's do a better job of exploiting it. We should also modify our tone on public warnings to China. U.S. officials, such as National Security Advisor Sullivan, have repeatedly and publicly declared that we were warning China of consequences were they to transfer arms to Russia or help Russia evade sanctions. Let's try fewer warnings and more inducements. That would work a lot better with the Chinese. So let's review. The situation on the ground is dire. Putin is committed to a bloody grind. The sanctions are not biting enough to make him stop anytime soon. One way we could mess with Putin's game, and perhaps change his calculation, is to have more diplomatic success beyond the West and Western allies. China is key. China operates on the basis of its own interests, and it might, just might, be in China's interests, given inducements, to distance itself from Russia, even somewhat. That would underline the isolation of Russia and undermine Putin, domestically and internationally. It might even persuade him that he cannot win. Only then will he stop his war. In June, the Chinese Minister of Defense made a statement that has an inkling of what we would like to see. Quote, In the Ukraine crisis, China has never provided any material support to Russia. China, The China-Russia relationship is a partnership. It is not an alliance. That sounded reasonably good. Bottom line, Xi's partner, Putin, has gone rogue. We should incentivize a distancing by China from rogue Putin. For that, we need a diplomatic approach to China that uses the West's economic weight with China, focuses on Putin's violation of the rules-based order that has benefited China, and offers incentives more than warnings. So, can U.S. diplomacy shift China policy on Ukraine? It won't be easy, but it would matter, and it's definitely worth a try.
Well, that's it for this episode of the Free Willing Diplomat Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to share it. We'd love to expand our horizons. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. This is Colin Cleary, the Free Willing Diplomat. Thank you for listening. Thank you.